It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello, everyone. This is Eli Kurtz, and uh, I'm here with Eric Farmer. Hey, Eric. Hello. And we are here on the first episode of Zhang Hu Hustle, a uh, kind of design diary series where we are going to uh, do a mixture of analysis and design. So, Eric, uh, why don't you tell us what our purpose is here? Right. So, Eli and I have been having a great time talking about Kung Fu, and we said, well, we got to make this a thing. What's our ideal Kung Fu role-playing game? And we both realized that there was knowledge that we we shared, that one person had, the other person didn't have, and then stuff that we needed to learn. So this is our quest and our design diary to make a Kung Fu RPG and to study the the wuxia tradition as it applies to tabletop. So we're going to be looking at our initial framework for the role-playing game segment is at least looking at the Jared Sorensen's big three questions. If you haven't heard of that, they're real simple. What is the game about? That's number one. How is it about that? That's number two. And how do we get the characters to do that thing? And that's number three. If we get to a point where we can start answering those questions, we know we're on the right track. But right now, we're just going to get started. We're going to be taking apart some different things, and I think Eli's going to talk about that. Yeah, so uh, we have a course of research that we've set out for ourselves. Like you said, Eric, you know, each of us comes with a certain amount of knowledge that we've brought to this. You have uh, pretty firm familiarity with a lot of the older kung fu movies. Um, I am an aficionado of some of the newer ones. Um, I've studied martial arts and I've done some, uh, I've done some research into, you know, the literature, a very tiny bit though. Um, but yeah, we each have our, our skills that we're bringing to this and we each have gaps in our skills too that we're trying to figure out. And so what we're going to do is the format for the show generally is going to be the first part, the first two thirds or so. We're going to, do some research, uh, find a trope in the wuxia genre and analyze that, examine it, see what we can figure out. And then in the final third, we'll talk about how to turn that into a gameable idea. Um, some of the research that we're going to be looking into is wuxia as a genre, what it means, where it comes from, what it does. Um, also, you know, drawing sources from movies, from games, uh, and all sorts of stuff in the course of this design diary. So, um, with no more ado, I guess we can jump right into the first topic. Uh, you ready to do this, Eric? Let's do it. All right, cool. So, our topic for tonight is the Sha, or uh, translated from... Chinese, it's the knight errant. There are a lot of different uh, translations for this figure because they're not clearly translatable, I guess you would say. The Shah is a figure in these Kung Fu stories who is, uh, you know, uh, who cares more about their martial principles than they care about their own life. They care more about martial principles than they do about the 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 family um expectations that are leveled upon them as part of a confucian culture uh they they live to move through the world of martial arts and to affect society in that way um and i think a couple of the movies that we'll probably draw upon most tonight are a movie that i just watched tonight at your suggestion eric uh, oh, i'm fire. so excited i'm yeah. so excited 
Five Deadly Venoms. It was pretty good. A Shaw Brothers film. I think it was from 1978. Uh, it was, it was, it was solid, solid viewing. And then a movie that I watched just recently too, and I think you're familiar with it. Um, Drunken Master 2 with Jackie Chan. Uh, I don't have as much, you know, IMDb information about that one, but, uh, we can put stuff in the show notes. We'll, we'll link this stuff out so people can look this stuff up. Uh, right now we're trying to find stuff that is streamable because I keep suggesting movies to Eli. And then he can't find them because right. they're from forever ago. So, yeah. yeah so right Five now we'll, we'll sort of frame our discussion to, uh, with, with those two movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, this this figure, uh, the Shah is the Chinese term, but we've decided to settle upon knight errant as a translation so that uh, we're not constantly asking people to, you know, go to their glossary and figure out what we're talking about exactly. Um, and we also want to try to avoid whatever kind of cultural appropriation we can um, right away at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah. that's a thing that we're going to have to keep, keep developing. That's a separate topic that we will definitely talk about, but yeah. we will probably translate most of these things into their sort of rough English equivalents. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely worth stating that we are two white guys who are working on a Kung Fu RPG by uh, genre analysis, you know, like uh, we, we should definitely be careful of appropriation as we're going about this task. So I appreciate you bringing that up. All um, right. So uh, Eli, you pointed me towards an amazing essay mm-hmm. and we are also going to link to that. Uh, I am hoping to contact the people that wrote it and maybe get portions of that read. We can maybe read portions of that on the show. Oh, absolutely. Um, because uh, I just think it's super helpful for just the beginning framing. It's a, it's an introduction to Wuxia and we're going to keep referencing it. So let's, uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Definitely go check. If you get a chance, go and read it. Yeah. And, and it's not very long. I want to say it's maybe no more than like two or 3000 words. So, you know, it's a 15 minute read. Um, but it's got a lot of really good info. It's a, it's a solid introduction to the wuxia genre. Um, and yeah, I guess before we talk about the figures of the genre, we should establish as a baseline, what is the genre? Um, and so just really quickly, I guess, wuxia is composed of two characters in, uh, in Chinese. The first one is a character for martial arts, uh, war, the military, that sort of thing. And then the second, the Shah, is the type of protagonist that you find in Wuxia stories. So uh, it's also kind of a synonym for chivalry, right? A chivalrous person. And so Wuxia is literally the study of chivalrous combat or the genre of chivalrous combat in Chinese culture. Um, but beyond that, it gets really muddy. It turns out that uh, Chinese culture is is highly steeped in uh, oblique um, description and oblique analysis of things. So there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of contextual ways that we could define this. But um, I guess we'll start off by saying uh, pointing out some of the ways that you can spot a Shah or a knight errant in the kung fu genre. Right. So. For example, Eric, uh, this Five Deadly Venoms movie that we just watched, do you want to give a quick overview of what happens in the movie and who our major players are? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't have the names nailed down, but the the basic plot uh, is that there is an old master who is dying. He, 
He had taught students, he belonged to this poison clan, which in sort of rough terms did evil Kung Fu. Mm -hmm. Um, But he had changed his ways. He had taken on one last student and instructed him as well as he could in a bunch of the different types of Kung Fu that comprised the poison clan style. Mm -hmm. And he needed, he set his young apprentice on a, on a mission to take out the five deadly venoms, the five most deadly students that he had Mm -hmm. so that he could make right what he put wrong uh, Mm -hmm. in the world. And that's, that's sort of the start. And then from there it gets, uh, it, it, it branches out a little bit. I mean, how far do you want me to go, Eli? <laughs> well, no, I think that's pretty solid. And I guess so um, I'll, I'll step in and I'll do the characters since I literally just watched the movie. They're kind of fresh in my mind. Um, you've got the student, you know, and the master. Uh, the master has sent the student out on this mission to go basically dismantle the, the poison clan. And then you've got these five previous students who are sort of masters in their own right now. Um Let's see here. The first one. Uh, and the thing about the movie is that all the characters, all these deadly venoms are disguised now. Whenever they left their tutelage, they changed their names and they only acted in secret because that's one of the hallmarks of the Poison Clan. They're very subtle. And so the student has to not only track these people down, but also identify them in the first place. Um, and so it's it's a lot of like intrigue that goes on in the course of this movie. But the five venoms in question, you've got Centipede who is super fast. They also call him Thousand Hands. Uh, you've got Scorpion, whose kicks can paralyze you, and he's like just a phenomenal kicker, and he's got these pincher technique things. Um, you've got Snake, who's really fast and whose right and left arms can work together to overcome pretty much any defense. Uh, you've got um, Toad, who's super strong and super tough, like no blades can pierce his skin. And then uh, Lizard is the final one. And Lizard has the light body skills, so he can, like, stand on the wall and uh, he can project his force a little bit. You see him at the beginning. He's, like, standing perpendicular on a wall and using his hands to blow out candles across the room. Um, and and so the the drama of the story plays out as this student wanders through the world, sort of in disguise himself as a kind of beggar figure or something, and he observes all of these martial artists in this town and he tries to figure out, oh, is that a style that I've studied? Like, is that a style? Ooh, which one, which style is it that I've studied? Who's who? And then, um, one of the other things that the master tells him is I've taught you, like you're the generalist, you know, I've taught you all the skills that these five masters possess individually and you're not as good in any one of them as these guys are, so you can't take them on by yourself. You have to find whichever one of them is the least bad, and you've got to side right, yeah, with him. He, he serves up some cold lunch to that apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you're not, you're okay, but you're not as good as as these guys. Yeah. So you're, you're definitely going to have to team up with one of them. Yeah. And then after that, you're going to have to figure out what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you will have learned enough dealing with the other four that mm-hmm. you can take out the fifth one. It, it, yeah. it ends up you know, not coming to that. But. Yeah. And one of the interesting things, like I know they're all kind of brought together over this treasure that they're chasing after. And it's interesting to me that even within the Poison Clan, these five students who are now masters, they have 
kind of turned against each other. And some of them are working together to topple the other ones. And, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of heated relationships in between these characters here. Um, and it, I think that was the real strength of the movie to see how even fellow students can turn against each other or like just how the relationships develop, uh, as these stories are being told, you know? Well, I think the other thing, uh, circling back to the knight errant concept that, that we're talking about mm-hmm. is that we get to see six or seven of them in this movie. Yeah. All interacting. And so you get to see how a story can play out where it's not just the lone gunslinger comes into town. Ah, uh, yeah. Which is, which is sort of, which is very much a related concept to the knight errant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much so that Stephen King wrote I don't know how many books about it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And you get to see if you include the master and I, I kind of don't. So let's, let's, let's pull the master out. Mm-hmm. So there's six, there's the five venoms and then there's the apprentice mm-hmm. and you get to see their allegiances change and uh, they pair up and they, they turn into trios and they split apart and you get to see what effect that has on the world. And you also get to see what a knight errant looks like if they're not good. If they're not what we would think of in the West as a good character. Totally. Because, I mean, one of the, one of the hallmarks of this knight errant character is that they, they are a balance of different codes that, that the, the, the world of these errants adhere to, right? And so, uh, there, I, I found an, another article that has an example of five different codes of the knight errant. And they are chivalry, um, you know, courteousness, that sort of thing, gallantry, um, being bold, uh, decorum, doing what's right, wisdom, knowing what's the right thing to do, and loyalty, being loyal to the people around you. And it's interesting to see how, as these poison clan martial artists have hidden themselves in society they've taken on different aspects of the society as represented by these codes so for example you've got the uh the the one character is like a police officer who uh is embedded in the police and he's this kind of happy-go-lucky dude he likes gambling he smiles a lot uh i guess it's worth saying that there are going to be spoilers in this thing so <laughs> it's, it's also it's also a year-old movie. Well, you know? yeah, you I mean, know. It's nearly 40 years old at this it's, point, I think. So. Yeah, so if you haven't seen it at this point, I mean, that's on you. We're also <laughs> not, that's also not the point of a, of a kung fu movie. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, the actual, yeah. the actual secrets and things like that aren't often as important as the way the relationships play out with each other. But So anyway, I would almost say that this uh, guardsman, uh, who's one of the five Venoms, he happens to be a lizard, he, uh, he kind of demonstrates the code of gallantry to me. You know, he's, he's a larger than life character who seems to want to help people, but he's also always kind of dealing under the table. He's not super, he's not necessarily doing what's right. He's doing what's good for the people he knows, you know? Um, and that's an interesting dichotomy because most of the time when you think of heroic characters, they're altruistic or universally so. And in this case, he's really not. Um, he's, he's pretty much just focused on the people that are in his direct sphere of influence, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, it is, it is interesting to see, um, uh, where, where this police officer, so snake is doing, is being a gallant 
knight errant. Then uh, I think lizard, the apprentice no. is demonstrating. What's that? Lizard, not snake. Oh, lizard. Oh, yeah. I got it mixed up. Thank you. He's also, so, I, I thought of him as terrible five o'clock shadow because in the movie he's basically got like eye shadowed on uh, facial hair. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's real good. Yeah, it's. Yeah. <laughs> but he. I know they want to make him cool so badly. I know. He's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. But, all right, so, Lizard. Did I get that right? Yeah, Lizard is the guy. So, Lizard Lizard is gallant, Mm -hmm. right? Where the apprentice is, is, even though he plays the role of a a sort of a fool Mm -hmm. uh, in in the piece through a large part of it, he sort of disappears from the narrative for a while while we follow Lizard around. Mm -hmm. The apprentice is demonstrating loyalty. Yeah, I would say so too. He seems to be the one who, because I mean, the master's instructions are, Hey, I need you to track these guys down because they're not so good. And I just trained you in this style. What I need you to do is end the style. (laughs) I need you to stop all these other people and then never practice it again. And that's a huge thing, you know, like, Oh, I just spent years teaching you this stuff. Now I need you to take out the people who are also good at it and then never do it again. <laughs> well, and it's, it's it's a sins of the father yeah. uh, parable as well, where where the apprentice is the surrogate son of the master mm-hmm. has to go and deal with uh, deal with the sins that that the father has wrought in the world at the cost, and like sins of the father parables end up at a very steep cost. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and so uh, carrying on with these five codes, I mean, obviously there are six people at hand, so we're not going to cover all of them. But um, I think another example, decorum, right? Uh, this is the Chinese word li. And it's uh, it's important in Confucian uh, or Confucianism, which I've studied a little bit. The li are uh, also translated as rites or rituals. And we're not talking about like, you know, uh, communion at a Catholic church or something. We're talking about like even the practice of shaking a person's hand when you first meet them is one of the rituals of living in the world, right? And so decorum in this sense is not just what you do when you're, when you're in a, a, what the West might think of as a ritualized space, but it's, it's every interaction that is understood to be important, you know, shaking someone's hand, um, saying hello when you answer the phone, uh, you know, open holding the door for people who are coming in behind you. All of these things are part of the Lee, right? And I thought it was kind of a difficult one to assign to any one character in this thing, but if I had to, I think it would probably be Snake, who ends up being the, like, rich aristocrat who gets into the family, or who gets into the, the clan, right? Um, sure, yeah, that makes sense, because he he is sort of upholding the society's decorum uh, while also sort of playing this other part. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. They don't necessarily all match up perfectly, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, which is fine. Uh, it, stories don't have to be that simple. It is interesting to like take these apart and see which parts fit with, with all of them. Uh, we haven't even really talked about chivalry. And I think, I think they a lot of them demonstrate chivalry in certain certain extents. Yeah, uh, there's there's one scene in particular that's sticking out to me right now. It's when Centipede uh, gets surrounded by cops in the street, and they all draw their swords on him and they attack. But he uses his like thousand hands technique to deflect all of the blows that are coming his way. 
And then the cops kind of draw back a little bit and they're still all around him, you know, like five feet on either side, uh, ready to strike. But he just starts walking forward almost as if he's ignoring them. And they don't attack. They follow him in formation down the street. And that to me is a moment where it's like, okay, the ethics of martial combat right now are telling me that you have signaled a, a temporary ceasefire and I am allowing you to proceed to this one place so that we can see how this story develops in the fight, you know. I think we're going to touch back on that when we talk about the scale of the Knight Errant. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and how the Knight Errant is a, a larger than life figure in the world in which they find themselves. Yeah, exactly. All right. So which one? So we've talked about chivalry. Mm-hmm. We've talked about gallantry. Yeah. We've talked about decorum. We've talked about loyalty. We haven't really talked about wisdom. Do you want to talk a little bit about ye? Yeah, so um, Yi is another Confucian concept, and if the Li is the ritual of daily life, if it's how if it's the things you are supposed to do in life, then Yi is the wisdom to know which one ritual applies out of a set of possible rituals in a situation. Right. So, for example, uh, to keep with this kind of introduction theme, if I approach a stranger. I'll hold out my hand and shake hands with them. And it's appropriate for me to do that because I don't know them very well. Whereas if I'm approaching my best friend, I'm going to run up to him and like wrap him up in a hug and, and tell him I've, I've missed him a lot or whatever, you know, like, and, and that's the appropriate thing for me to do in that situation because my relationship to him is a lot closer than it would be to some random stranger. And so the decorum is the shaking hands or hugging mm-hmm. and the wisdom is knowing when to do one and when to do the other. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it goes all the way up and all the way down to, you know, like every single situation, whether you're shaking hands with a, with some other person or whether you are crafting policy for the entire empire or something, um, there is always going to be a set of possible actions you could take and you will have to apply your wisdom to the situation to know which one is the actual right thing to do. And in terms of applying this to a character in the movie, I kind of struggle. I think Toad comes close and so does the student, but I think it's a little bit of a toss up between the two of them. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Toad, poor Toad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's a he's a he's a good guy. He doesn't he doesn't deserve what he gets. No, um, no, no. Uh, so I, I I think of him as as also being loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a certain amount of wisdom that gets baked in to a knight errant when they need to learn these styles. Right? Yeah, because it's all about when to apply certain types of effort. It doesn't. Sometimes it extends in other directions. Right, and then sometimes it uh, sometimes it's just related to their their martial abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't separate with a with a knight errant character in the wuxia genre. You can't separate their their martial abilities from their personal abilities. No, you're absolutely right, and um, I think so. We have examples of all of these venoms and the student each kind of exemplifying particular codes, right? And one of the things I think is really interesting is to see, because like you said, these characters are not all heroes. Some of them are actually villains, but they're all knight errants in this world of martial arts. And it's interesting to see how they're really good at some things or they're examples of some things, but they're actually 
the opposite for some other codes, you know. So for example, um the 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 snake guy, the the snake noble, he's a good example of decorum, but he's not a very good example of chivalry because he's actually the one who's manipulating things behind the scenes and like trying to get Toad to take the fall for this murder that Snake has committed, right? Right. Uh, or maybe that could be the difference between loyalty and treachery too. You know, he's he's uh, he's strong in some areas, but he's definitely weak in others. And I think it's cool to see how all of those characters arguably have some moments of, or some strengths and some weaknesses within this five tenant code. That probably about wraps it up for for talking about these five codes. Totally, uh, we can. I think we'll definitely come back and we'll visit these again. Oh yeah. When we t- when we start talking about characters, we can start seeing how they where they are on these on these these five codes. We may discover that there are more things that we need to be we need to be looking at. Mm-hmm. We may discover that some of these things can are subsumed into into different things. So I think this is a great place to sort of set our thoughts mm-hmm. when we go and we look at when we look at characters later. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. And I, I want to get back to something that you hinted at earlier about um, the scale of the knight errant within the world uh, of martial arts, right? So what what were you talking about there? To tease that out a little bit more for me. We should we need to give a little bit of context for this. Mm-hmm. So in in the wuxia genre, uh, there are there are three sort of basic levels of society. Mm-hmm. There's the civilian structures, the towns, and all of the regular people, and there is the the government and the upper level, and then there is a a a band in between, a shadowy underworld called the Jianghu. Yeah. And that's where our knight errants exist. We'll get back to the Jianghu. It's it's actually a big topic. Yeah, I think uh, saving most of that for another episode is ideal. Exactly, but we right. do definitely need to provide a general idea of what it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the knight errant exists in a uh, in this sort of broad liminal space between authority and everyday life, mm-hmm. and. The knight errant is special. It's it's they are they are heroes. Whether they are whether they are heroes in the sense that they are that they are good, mm-hmm. or whether they are heroes in the sense that they change the world and are sometimes villains, like we see in Five Deadly Venoms, mm-hmm. they have a scale of influence that is larger than anyone else's. Mm-hmm. So we get back to when we're talking about Centipede, and he's dealing with these these police officers essentially Mm -hmm. and he's got a whole ring of guys around him and he's just one guy but they recognize and he recognizes that even though there's a whole group of these guys that this is not an even fight yeah he still has the advantage yeah he's not even worried he's not even particularly worried in this fight scene like he's basically just like oh a bunch of dudes i have to beat okay well let's do this and they're like oh this one guy could take all of us out right and that makes that makes the knight errants really interesting from a story perspective because Mm -hmm. even if they make regular human decisions they have outsized influences on the world yeah and it also makes them really valuable to the various other groups, whether it's 
the governmental groups, the civilian groups, or other factions within within the, the Jianghu underworld. And it makes them an interesting playing piece to get moved around or for them to, when whenever they move, they are moving someone else out of their way. And it always, all of their actions create ripples. Mm-hmm. And more than just ripples, ripples sound small. Mm-hmm. I mean, they create waves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, as an example, you know, in the course of this movie, uh, The Five Deadly Venoms, they are really just acting out a feud between each other. They're not even trying to change the government structure or anything like that. But in the course of them just playing out their lives, you see them take advantage of a corrupt government. You see them, uh, you see them like clearing out tea houses just by saying like, I need some space to think. Um, they, they have a huge impact on the world around them. And oftentimes it doesn't even require much effort for them to exert that kind of impact around, uh, on the world around them. Uh, like in the case of the tea house, the guy literally just says like, Hey, everybody get out of here. And everybody looks terrified. Like, Oh no, we have to do what he says. And then they stand there and then he's like, did you not hear me? I said, get out of here. And immediately they just vacate the place, you know? Um, so yeah, the night errant has a lot of pull within the world of, of martial arts. Uh, and even in the, in the normal world outside of it too. And it's, it's the influence of the night errant creates, and we're going to talk about melodrama a lot. I think as we go along, because a lot of the, the story structures that I really respond to from Kung Fu films uh, are really melodramatic mm-hmm. story structures. And you get the, when you have a hero moving through the storyline, creating these waves, and their actions have, have these huge consequences, that's why tragedies happen so often. Mm-hmm. It's because they take these actions and the consequences are so much larger, but they are still people in a sense. Their 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 actions are outsized, mm-hmm. but often their emotions are still people sized. Yeah, and so it makes it makes when a when a tragedy happens or when somebody is truly heroic and good, it makes those actions as they reverberate back. They they hit even harder because they're just crashing down on a regular person. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that their emotions, uh, fuel their actions in a lot of ways, but on the one hand, you've got their actions, the way that they can exert themselves upon the world. And then, uh, and, and so their actions are kind of how they are capable of changing the world, but then their emotions are sometimes the thing that, causes them to be loyal and go try and dismantle their own clan of fighters. And sometimes their emotion is what drives them to their own destruction or to some sort of folly on a wider scale too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we had talked about uh, a code. Uh, we talked about sort of the nightly codes. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that when those come into conflict with each other, uh, and within, which even just within one person, mm-hmm. uh, when someone needs to be, when someone needs to be loyal, but they shouldn't, or yeah. when loyalty, uh, battles up against their, uh, so that would be, that might be like loyalty battling up with wisdom, 
It's like, do you choose the people who are important to you or do you choose what is right? Right. Or I know what action I should do. Mm -hmm. And then I know what action I must do. So there's a, there's like your decorum wisdom battling against each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we, if I can get you to watch duel of the century, if you can dig that one up, that one, this topic will come back around because that's a huge part of that one. So really quickly, we did record an episode before this, but my audio didn't capture. <laughs> and I remember that you mentioned that duel of the century to me. It sounds really cool. Basically, these two people who swore to have a duel, but then the circumstances change and they probably shouldn't duel anymore. But uh, but they are still committed to doing it because they've given their word. Um, I'm sure that would be really rife with a lot of wuxia ideas that we could draw from. So that we should definitely put that on the watch list. Awesome. Yeah, we should. We'll definitely. We'll 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 pick that one back up if I can find a a copy that is available beyond my local library. Uh, we will definitely do that thing. Sounds All good. Right. We've talked about the codes, and we've talked about the knight errant as an influencer of the wider world, right? Uh, with through the avenue of their power. But uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is the power itself of the Knight Errant and how it's acquired, like the style of the Knight Errant and the school where he or she learned it. And I think that there's a lot to come from Drunken Master 2 that would inform how we can approach this discussion of styles and schools, you know. Awesome. Why don't you give me a, a quick rundown, a refresher on Drunken Master 2, since you've, you've yeah. seen that more, re- more recently. Yeah, sure. So Drunken Master 2, uh, Jackie Chan is Wang Fei-Hung, uh, who's a famous folk character in Chinese culture. He's a, he's a little bit like, uh, he's not quite Robin Hood, but he's used for a lot of different tropes, actually. Um, he's a historical figure. He was a doctor uh, and a martial artist, but he's used for everything from Robin Hood to like, I don't know, King Arthur or, or just about any western trope uh western heroic trope you could imagine from the medieval period but anyway so wang fei hong is the star pupil of his father's drunken boxing school and he is constantly being told by his father you can't we can't we can't let drunken boxing get out of control because when it gets out of control it ruins people's lives uh you need to keep it under control and you need to be respectful and and like and a, and a, and a duteous son and student and person of the world uh but Jackie Chan keeps getting into these situations where he's being called upon to use drunken boxing and as a person who's pretty proud of his accomplishments within his school he's usually pretty happy to use drunken boxing and so the story uh regardless of like you know the political aspect of the story which there is certainly one in the plot um, it's it's kind of the the arc of the story, but um, the real emotional value of the story is him coming to terms with his own training and balancing his pride with what's right and and all this stuff, uh, all these codes that we talked about earlier. And one of the things that I noticed is that uh, I think this would be a decent place to get into this part of the discussion. So it seems like he's got three different tiers of his of his style, right? Uh, he's got just basic Kung Fu, we'll say, which seems to be almost like a handshake. Uh, it's a way for people to (laughs) identify each other and to basically gauge each other's skill, but not really determine anything. Um, and then he's got his school style, drunken boxing and his school style is more impressive. It's more powerful. It's more likely to overcome an enemy. Um, 
but he's still holding back a little bit. And then he's got like the fully unlocked version of drunken boxing, which is the style while he's also actually drunk. And he's just unstoppable whenever he's, whenever he's unlocked the full potential of his style. Um, and it's cool to see how that plays out in really discrete tiers, uh, discrete, you know, of course, meaning separate, not secret. Um, but yeah, it's cool to see how there's a definite difference between him just answering a challenge in the street versus him fighting for the school's honor versus him actually fighting for his life. That's uh, that's really interesting. I want to, at some point, not now, because this isn't what we're talking about, mm-hmm. we're talking about that sort of kung fu as handshake. Yeah. Because it ties into uh, a conversation that you and I were having earlier about uh, combat as communication. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's one of the things that kind of started this whole thing off, really, was the idea that violence in wuxia movies is more about storytelling than about the admittedly impressive choreography. And that's not what we see represented in martial arts games. Yeah, for the most part, it's it's not, and so so yeah, that that's that's what sort of drove this this forward. But I I think that's a thing that we can set aside for now. But just just listener, put it in your ear, maybe maybe put it in your back pocket. Yeah, that that fighting in kung fu movies is not really about fighting. No, it's about communication. It's about plot, and it's about representing things that the characters are about more than it is about the punching and the kicking. But let's get back to this, these these three levels of styles here. So we've got our, our Kung Fu style, our basic style, mm-hmm. which every, everyone seems to have to a certain extent. It sort of depends on your on which movie you're going with. Well, yeah, but to use Drunken Master as an example, uh, Jackie Chan is a student of a martial arts school, has Kung Fu. Um, his mom as a doctor, has Kung Fu. Uh, the fishmonger in the market has Kung Fu. Like every single one of them can do basic martial arts at the very least. Right. And in that way, it resembles a musical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, is a whole, which is a whole other thing we can get into at some point. Yeah, I hadn't considered that comparison, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's kind of conspicuous that everybody can fight just like it's conspicuous that everybody can sing in a musical. Oh, man. Right, unless you're, unless you're Rex Harrison and then you just talk singing. Well, yeah. But, but I digress. <laughs> so I think what we're looking at here with these three styles, and you have it partially laid out here, is what am I willing to... Uh, how much how much power am I willing to expend? And then what is the cost to me when I use that power? So how much influence am I willing to put out into the world? And then how much of that blowback am I willing to take? Yeah, yeah, because that really is what it's like. Uh, the different tiers are not only used in different contexts, but it's a question of how much do I want to try and change the world right now? And the hidden question inside that is, how many consequences am I comfortable dealing with right now? And what parts of my code that I carry am I willing to break or invert to to really unlock the, the deepest part of whatever style I have? Mm-hmm. Right? Because Jackie Chan, he is supposed to be keeping his drunken style under control. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And He's got to decide, is it worth breaking the loyalty to my teacher, to my father, and also putting myself in grave danger? Is, yeah. is, is that worth the, the objective that I'm going for? 
Yeah, because he actually swears an oath to his dad that he will never drink again uh, because mm. of the shame that he's brought upon his school while he was drunk. And uh, and he wants to stick with that. But then and this is where the wider plot, the political plot uh, comes into play, where he's kind of forced to act on behalf of his community. And the only way he can win the day is by deciding, OK, I need to unlock the full potential of this. And now I understand what sort of external forces push me to use this. It's not just that I'm choosing to use the fullest potential of my style. It's that I understand the need for it too. We keep coming back to this essay Mm -hmm. and there is a quote in there. that says that he treasures the state friendship, duty, promises, kindness, vengeance, honor, and righteousness more than his own life. So promises is in there. You know, I mean, that's the thing that really, that really rang a bell for me when you were talking about, look, he swore an oath, Mm -hmm. right? He's got honor, he's got duty, and he has a promise on the line. And so if he breaks those things, uh, they, it's, it's sort of like breaking a chemical bond and that like a lot of energy is released, but Mm -hmm. there's destruction. Yeah, totally right. Yeah. Well, and from that list that we just mentioned too, from this quote, you know, I mean, he, he did make a promise not to use drunken boxing anymore, at least not to do it while he's drunk. But he also has a duty to his community, you know, and also toppling these nasty dude, these nasty industrialists uh, is the righteous thing to do. And that's like what you said, you know, whenever, whenever your different values come into conflict with each other, how do you choose? What is, what is the most appropriate thing to do in the situation? Yeah. And that's what makes, that's what makes the story so exciting. I mean, that's what, that's what drives the conflict. Yeah. And with characters, the, with a knight errant character having these, these strong sticking points where they, they are moving in a particular direction because that is where they derive their, their power from Mm -hmm. seeing whether they will stick with that, where they will break, where they will bend. Right. And Mm -hmm. where they will invert is where the interesting story beats come out of a a Wuxia story. Absolutely. And so I think at this point we've recorded, uh, quite a bit of audio. I think it would make sense to flip over and start talking about gameable ideas from this foundation we've just built. Yeah, it seems this seems like the right time. Yeah, totally. The first idea that I have, uh, and this is sort of how I would imagine an attribute array for this theoretical game that we're brainstorming here. Um, I think the attributes would boil down to the codes, the five codes, you know. And I like the idea for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's emblematic of the genre. But then second of all, your code determines your actions. Uh, I mean, in real life, like if you adopt a code, then that, that determines how you act and why you act and that sort of thing. And it is not at all about, you know, I know the iron hand technique or like I know the thousand hands technique or whatever. It's all about this is the the quality of life that matters to me. And this is the quality that I'm going to defend. And so it is like a a fundamentally storytelling based thing. But my thought is that to make sure we're not just creating a bunch of supermen uh, to have these five codes and to pick two of them to be your greatest virtues and then pick one of them that is your actual vice and you subvert that code and you are that that's what pulls you into the narrative. Uh, It's what gets you into trouble, you know? 
Right. It's what it's what uh, makes you a snake or what makes you a Jackie Chan. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though one's a villain and one's a hero, they both have vices that pull them in a direction that is that's destructive in mm-hmm. a certain in a certain sense. Um, when when I look at these things, because they have a synonym and an antonym, mm-hmm. I see a setup for a character foil. Like if you've got two characters and then they mirror each other, yeah, then they make perfect foils, mm-hmm. and that they can push each other in those ways that just creates those those sparks. And yeah. so it would depend on whether that was a a game master character that was that way, or whether we were doing something along the lines of five venoms where several jaw come together for a particular thing and they all represent different virtues and vices and they all are, they all foil each other in different mm-hmm. ways. If I can, if I can verb foil, uh, in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, so, um, let's, let's use, a particular trope in not just wuxia, but broadly just action movies, right? The the sort of battle brothers trope. And it's these two people who are totally aligned with each other and they're like perfect compliments or whatever. They're not foils necessarily. They just, they are, they are of a mind together. And I think the mere presence of that trope tells you that most of the time it's not going to obtain. Most of the time, you're going to have people who are compromising to work together, or uh, even whether that's a little compromise or a huge one, you're still going to have people who don't perfectly match up. And I think in the same way that Fiasco uh, establishes relationships between the characters and those relationships sort of doom them to a particular kind of failure by the end of the mo- or by the end of the game, I think something for this game would be really cool to see like something similar for this game would be really cool to see you know you've got all these player characters who are coming together because of some overarching reason but they don't necessarily get along perfectly with each other right uh and you mentioned the word doom and doom is a thing that i've been thinking a lot about in Mm -hmm. terms of of the knight errant character because they exist in a world where they can they can destroy so many things but all, we also talked about that that sort of outsized influence rolling back on them yeah and it the and the knight errant is almost doomed from the outset in in one particular way or another it kind of varies based on what the the story is about but when but when jackie chan's father makes him promise you know you like you can't drink again you you are you are endangering this this school and you're endangering your community and Jackie Chan promises like someone should ring a bell in the distance right mm. because <laughs> because that is when that is when his doom is sealed he set himself on a path where he has to make a choice you have to make a choice and you get to you get to a point where you you can follow the code that was set for you and fail at your objective, or you can succeed at your objective and pay the cost. Yeah. So, I mean, jumping back to um, the discussion of schools and styles, uh, one thing that I had thought about, uh, but I I hadn't really mentioned explicitly, was that these three different tiers of power, like you said, each one of them has a different... uh, level of influence that it exerts on the wider world. But on the flip side of that, 
there's also a consequence. And we touched a little bit on that, but in Drunken Master 2 specifically, I noticed that whenever Jackie Chan's using Kung Fu, uh, the basic level, he might lose, but the most he will suffer is injured pride and like a scraped elbow, maybe, or something. You know, it doesn't really hurt him. Whereas if he's using his school style and all of a sudden there's prestige attached to it, first of all, the the injured pride that he suffers has ramifications for all the people who, who also study that style. Uh, but then also, using the style, he's saying, this matters more to me, I'm going to fight harder, which means he could actually get an injury from from losing with his style as well, right? Right. And then, and then finally, when it's fully unlocked, if he loses while he's drunk and using drunken boxing, the reputation loss is catastrophic. And he could actually die from it, too. Death is on the table at that highest level. That's a really interesting thing to think about stake setting. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, I wish we had a Bob to be like, hey, Bob, pin that. Right? We're just going to yeah. have to remember this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Because stake setting is is super important, uh, just, in, just in games and storytelling in general. Mm. But with such a great sort of delineation, go, okay, well, this is... Uh, you are. How much are you willing to gamble on this? What are what are literally your stakes in this? If they're if they're little, then you get little, right? Or you yeah. lose little, and then you know mm-hmm. and it gradually increases until it's you get to the point where it's the whole it's the whole ball of wax, and and you can lose everything. You can even win and lose everything. Yeah, and so I think that's something that is really important to think about in terms of making this game too you've got these tiers where there's different levels of influence and the the different tiers are informed by your character choices with your codes and your styles but i like the idea of in the course of gameplay the character like the player making the choice and saying this thing like this goal that we've just set achieve this goal through violence, but I'm only willing to commit this much violence to get this done. How many examples, maybe Dragon Ball Z is the most obvious one, but how many times do you watch a fight where somebody's like, they start off with a particular intention and then they realize they're not going to get what they want and they have to decide, do I ramp up the stakes here in the middle of this fight? Do I, do I give it all I've got? But I think that's a really important mechanical consideration as we develop this game. Right. It's a thing that we could look to something like Dogs in the Vineyard, which is really based, which is, is really about that stake setting and suffering consequences based on your decisions, like whether you choose to escalate. You know, if you start with words and the words aren't working, do you go to fists? If fists aren't working, do you pull a gun? And the, the stakes, the stakes change and the fallout changes based on how severe you, how, severely you want to push for the victory now i don't know that that's entirely the right model Mm -hmm. because it's okay to have a low stakes combat that's about something else right totally it's about it's about the characters feeling each other out it's about them passing character information about each other back and forth yeah because one of the other things we didn't really mention this earlier but one of the things that is really close to the heart of the genre is that if people are in disguise, the five, the five venoms is a great example. 
people are in disguise and the only way they can find out who each other is is by fighting each other and noticing what techniques they're using because your your style is really an identifier in this world right and it ties into your your reputation as mm-hmm. well which is another thing that the knight errant tends not to own anything except for their their reputation yeah cool uh, and, and so their abilities what we need to do then in terms of thinking about the mechanics of this game are to think about how each knight errant exemplifies or uh, does not exemplify a particular code. Uh, and then also how that code informs their style and then how their style helps them to influence the wider world. That's kind of, I think, the the track that we'll go on with with the character arc of these stories. Yeah, I think that makes sense. At some point, we'll have to step back and look at what our how we are setting up our characters. What mm-hmm. kind of story are we telling, and when? Where do our characters fit in? Um, is this an ensemble cast like a D and D party? Is this a some people are heroes and some people are villains, and we'll figure out at the end who is who? Um, mm-hmm. Like Five Deadly Venoms, mm-hmm. is it? a single character moving through a story and everyone else plays the, you know, the, the, the non-player characters essentially, or they play, they play minor roles. So that's, that's a thing that when, when we actually start working on the mechanics, we have to think about what play looks like. Absolutely. Regardless of that, thinking about stakes and the codes and where they intersect and, the tension that that creates, especially with the scale of the knight errant, that that all has to be, get baked in. That feels essential to me. Absolutely. I agree. All right. Well, I think since we're agreeing, we might actually be coming to the close of this thing. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, again for tuning in for the first episode of Jong Hu Hustle. Uh, I'm Eli Kurtz, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at ZapDynamic. You can find me also at my website, MythicGazetteer.com. Uh, we are official Savage Worlds licensees, and we publish some non-Savage Worlds stuff, too. So uh, uh, you can definitely check me out there. I'm also on Google Plus under my, uh, my name, Eli Kurtz. And uh, Eric, how can we find you? I'm also on Google+, but good luck finding me. Uh, the name is Eric Farmer, but you can find me on Twitter at Eric M. Farmer or at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com, uh, where I put up games for the unserious. You can also contact us both at our brand new email address, jianghuhustle at gmail.com, and that's J-I-A-N-G-H-U. H-U-S-T-L-E at gmail.com. It's not a mouthful Thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And uh, have a good night, everyone. Or a good day, or whatever you happen to be doing right now. <laughs> That's right. Just to have it, okay? Yeah, you have it. <laughs> John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.